Well, here's a story for you. To learn new languages. This and that for the past three years. At a young age, I've experienced a whole lot. And a lot of stuff happening here. Traveling back and forth. Have you ever thought about the words you use? Have you ever pondered on the words other languages use? And have you ever wondered to yourself, how are these sounds made? I'm Maxwell Hope, and my goal is to try to answer this question. Well, hello, everyone. Uh, today we have a special guest interview with Sammy Hollaby, a lifelong language learner and polyglot. Sammy is also the CEO and founder of the Univoice app, a language learning app where you learn to speak a language using music. Thanks so much, Sammy, for joining us on Hooked on Phonetics. So why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself and your, your language background, because I hear that you are fluent in several languages. Yes, indeed. Thanks so much for having me on the podcast. I really appreciate the opportunity, Maxwell. Yeah, so languages have been my entire life. I, like you said, I speak Arabic, uh, German, Spanish, and English fluently, and conversational and Italian. So, yeah, I, I'm really happy to be on. So you know almost five languages fluently, and how did you get so interested in them? You said you grew up learning some of them in the house mm -hmm. um, or in your environment. So what is your linguistic background? Of course. So I grew up in a trilingual household. I spoke Arabic at home, French at school, and English in society around me, as we all do, regardless of where we're from. So being raised on what I call a cultural and linguistic fault line it got me very keenly interested in different cultures, worldviews, and perspectives, particularly those that are divergent from my own. From a young age, I began viewing languages as a key to unlock worlds otherwise unexplored. There are really a few things more exciting to witness than someone's face light up when you engage them in their native language. They become instantly keen on sharing their world with you through their lens, and I really can't think of anything more special and pure than that. So from then on, it kind of transitioned from an interest to an obsession. I picked up Spanish throughout middle school. I self-taught German in high school and post-college began self-teaching Italian. Um, so my goal, my big hairy goal, is to hit seven languages by 30. That's awesome. So it sounds like this was really a way for you to get to know the local people or the native speakers that you were curious about their world. And I agree, like you said, that there's that spark in somebody's eyes when you speak their native language. Indeed. I am only fluent in English and French, and French is my second language. And I don't have a lot of people that I speak it with, so I'm not constantly refreshing myself. But I remember, you know, if I hear someone speaking French and I might pop, type up, you know, and just say a little thing. They always get very interested. Oh, you speak French. Like, that's so great. So I definitely understand that. <laughs> yeah, you have the personal context for it. It's a really special experience. Definitely. So because of this diverse linguistic knowledge that you have, you know, almost five full languages and soon to be seven, do you code switch? And just to give the people who are tuning in here some background about code switching, this is when you start out speaking in one language, you might switch to another one in a sentence or throughout a dialogue. So if you do that, what is that like for you? <laughs> so code switching has been a norm in my life ever since I can remember. It's happened most prevalently between Arabic and English. Uh, this context of code switching is obviously very organic as the two languages are native to me. But in many ways, it's also very utilitarian. There are certain things that are better expressed in Arabic while others better expressed in English. 
Plus, when in public, let's just say it's far easier to talk about other people using Arabic than English, at least living here in the United States. Yeah, I also found this manifesting itself after living in Germany for a few months and attaining fluency. To be quite honest, there were certain utilitarian aspects to it, but I primarily code switched between English and German for the fun of it. I just found it so cool that I had a new language in my back pocket, kind of like a superpower that I could call on at will. So it's kind of cool to see how code switching has manifested itself in different forms and for different use cases throughout my life. Yeah, definitely. And I know you started out by saying, you know, there's some things that are just better expressed in Arabic or there are some things that are just better expressed in, in a certain language. So I've definitely had that experience as well for myself. Yes. And perhaps because, you know, of the nature of this podcast, because we are talking about phonetics and speech sounds, what I'm really curious about is how do you differentiate or separate out those sounds that exist in one of the languages you speak from the other sounds? Because different languages have different sets of sounds that they utilize. Absolutely. That's a really good question, Maxwell. So for my native languages, at least, this is something I do very subconsciously. Given that the core purpose of language is communicating meaning, I find myself simply comprehending the meaning behind the words I'm hearing rather than getting hung up on particular sounds, intonations, or words. For the languages I speak that are non-native to me, however, one approach I take is anchoring myself in shared sounds or analogous syllabic pairings in my native language. So for example, when I was learning German, I came across the letter R, or er, and I'll give a couple of examples of what that sounds like in a word. So the way you say red in German, R-O-T, is rot, or to meet up with a friend is treffen. So that R uh sound is very analogous to the rain in Arabic, which is a G-H uh, transliterated. So it's interesting how it's like an R to a G-H, they just optically look so different but their intonation pronunciation is so similar. So I always look for those kinds of analogous Slavic pairings, like I said, or, or shared sounds between the new language that I'm learning, my new target language, and one of my native languages. However, regarding the sounds and syllables for which there's no analogy or clear comparison, I study those new sounds relentlessly until I master them. <laughs> like literally dungeon style, I just permit myself and I'm like, I will repeat this syllabic pairing 3,000 times until I get it. And kind of in similar form, anybody who takes language lessons with me, we're not moving on until you learn how to say every common syllabic pairing in the language. And oftentimes I'll do this through proxy. I'll teach them like for German, you know, the I-H, ich, or I-C-H sound, ich. I, I'm like, okay, it's like a snake. Right. And we find different proxy ways for them to learn how to do it, right? So yeah, reason being, Maybe this is like a, a vain reason that I do all this, but I only learn languages I can pass for as a native speaker in. So it's really important for me to perfect all those sounds in a language before learning to speak it. And similarly, to do the same in kind for my students who take through me. That's awesome. That also sounds really intense to, uh, you know, go over them again and again. But at, at the same time, I think that makes, that's a good way to do it, especially if you can't be immersed in the language. So yeah. if you can actually be in the country or the place that speaks the language, maybe you're getting that repetition enough. But if you're not, mm -hmm. that's definitely a good a good strategy. I'm curious too, do you ever merge some sounds together? Like do you ever combine, like you have one sound in one language and another sound and then you put them together? Sometimes, yeah, between English and Arabic, honestly, it's because of how divergent the sounds are. And so it's funny to me to like use, like let's say, so Arabic has two K sounds. There's kaf. 
and then there's af. So you can probably hear where the sounds are coming from. Gaf is like very soft coming from the top of the roof of my mouth and af is harder, more of like a clicking sound. And the proxy that I teach people for this is like doing that in your throat. Okay. Kind of clicking your throat. How do you click your throat? Um, so, okay. Where your Adam's apple is, if you like put your hand there yep. and try to like, <clears throat> when you clear your throat, you mm -hmm. see how <clears throat> you're going to mm -hmm. feel that, that yep. in your, in your Adam's apple, right? Mm -hmm. So, so try to, try oh, to I focus, almost did it. Yeah. Try to focus on that area and try to like gyrate, I guess, wow. for like a better phrase. I actually did it a little bit. That's the first time you are the first person that could get me to do that even a little close. Yeah, see, so these are the proxies that you just learn as a teacher, and you just have to find these ways to, to relay it in a more familiar way, because there's so much unfamiliar in a new language. You have to familiarize yourself with it as much as you possibly can. So, yeah, that's what I do. I just love to, like, use that off, you know, for, like, an English word, like, Kit Kat or something like that, you know, instead of Kit Kat. Oh, okay. It's, it's just funny, and I guess one way I don't necessarily merge, but... I replace sometimes a certain letter for an, for another letter in a different language. So, for example, in Arabic, there's no letter P, like Paul. Right. So my parents, my whole life, have just struggled hardcore to get this, like, P versus B thing going on. And so, like, if you go to a fried chicken place, like a fast food place in Syria, and you're ordering a drink, they'll, like, they say, Ayano abebsi betta. Bepsi, like what right. type of Pepsi do you want? Because Pepsi is like the way that you say soda, like it's like saying pop. Okay. In the U.S. And so, like the B sound is just something that you interchange for, you know, P. Right. So sometimes we also do that kind of swapping, but that's a very cool thing to do the kind of swapping. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah. And we actually in Hooked on Phonetics, we did our, I think it was like our first big episode, "Don't Stop Me Now." We talk about differences and stop. So. For those who are tuning in here, just a refresher on the pa versus the ba distinction is whether or not there is voicing going on. And in Arabic, like you're saying, they have the ba, they have the voiced one, but they do not have the voiceless pa. Exactly. So along with sounds, um, and sounds are created in the articulatory space, so how does your articulation actually change from language to language, if it does? So the the best way that I can speak to this is like, I'm very fortunate for the for my three native languages growing up to have like developed my throat in a particular way such that most sounds and syllabic pairings are very intuitive to me. So as I'm speaking languages, I 100% sense that my articulation is changing and I'm moving more forward into the front of my mouth or the roof of my mouth, or I'm retreating back into my throat or something like Arabic, which is a mixture. Because in Arabic, you do both. It's all it's in the front of your mouth, it's in the roof of your mouth, and it's in your throat. So they got a, all going on, all the sounds. And so because of that, I, I track it happening. But because my, like, my first language is one where you do all three of those that were, I just mentioned, and you so freely, fluidly transition between the three, it's very different than speaking a language natively like until, let's say, you're like 9, 10, until you learn a new language. And then you'd very perceivedly see when you're switching articulation. But for me, I don't because my native language, you literally, like, it's all over your mouth and your throat and your, the front of your mouth, your back of your mouth. And so because of that, I just feel like it's more imperceivable to me. 
but I can definitely track it when I'm going from like German to Arabic to Spanish. It almost kind of is associated with a demeanor change as well. I don't know if you've experienced okay. this before, but to me, like when I speak German, I'm like a little bit more like poised, I feel like. Okay. When I speak Arabic, I feel like more, I don't know, like more tribal in a sense. I don't know if that's the right. Because is that because like that's your home language, that's your native language. So it's like perhaps home is like your tribe. Perhaps I feel like it's also, you know, just kind of the, the nature of the language itself and kind of, you know, the, the different words and phrases that exist in a language, for example, like very much are indicative of the peoples and how the peoples interact with one another, like in their imagined space and like, right. And so I think it's also kind of archetypal. I, I think in addition to it being just the fact that it's my native language, it's also kind of archetypal to the language of you being more stern when you speak German or being more you know, free form when you're speaking Arabic or feeling really interpersonal and like, rah, when you speak Spanish, like that's how I feel. And then like when I speak Italian, I feel warm because it's, it's sonorous. It feels like you're singing. So I just find it so fascinating how like the articulation isn't just something that you track from like a pronunciation aspect, but you also are looking at it through kind of the disposition um, associated with that. Yeah. And I know that there's a lot of research going on right now about like how we actually like position our bodies, our postures and yeah. how we carry ourselves when we speak different languages. Yeah. I know a lot of people say that they feel like German is harsh as a harsh language. And that's so funny to me because I lived in Belgium and um, I had some friends there who spoke German as their first language and they sounded beautiful to me. You know, <laughs> I really think that German sounds just fantastic. It's so funny you said that, Maxwell, because literally the two languages that I find most beautiful, Arabic and German, are like the languages people find most harsh, which I find really funny because when people say that, what I always say to German is you've never heard Dutch. And then what I always say to Arabic is you haven't learned, you haven't heard Hebrew. Because I feel like Hebrew and Dutch are like the very hard counterparts of Arabic and German. Interesting. Okay, I'm very curious uh, how other people might interpret that too. I obviously have heard Dutch having lived in Belgium, yeah, especially because it's spoken, you know, exclusively in the north. And Dutch, yeah, I don't know. I, I can't think, it doesn't sound harsher compared to German. I think I'd really have to compare them side by side. So for a quick example, just yeah, like, go for it. yeah, like if you say, I don't know, I speak, I speak Dutch, let's say, in, in both German and Dutch. So in German, you'd say, Ich spreche Niederländisch. Mm -hmm. Very soft. Like, you can even just hold, like, a, like a wisp of air. It's so, so yeah, nice. Yeah, it's very witty, yeah. Right? But in Dutch, it's Ich spreche Niederländisch. It's, like, oh, yeah. so... It's, it's more, yeah. It's harder. It's, I can see what you're saying, and I think those sounds that are coming through are, like, the harder stops going on. Um, as opposed to the fricatives, because fricatives, like, yeah. and shh, they can be that soft, like, the shh sound. It's very, it sounds more whispery or gentle yeah. in some ways. So, um, yeah, it's interesting yeah. how people, I guess, it's for, for, you know, they speak from their personal experience. And if they don't know what Dutch sounds like, they're, that's all they have to go off of is German. But I'm like, no, if you compare them, and same thing with, like, you know, Arabic and Hebrew, you'll find a lot of like, those sounds in Hebrew, but in Arabic, I find it actually a lot more, a lot more soft and just gentle than that. I don't know. It's, it's, inter it's very interesting. It's, yeah. And it's very interesting how like our own 
preconceptions or misconceptions about people, culture, language influences how we perceive the languages. Like, Indeed. Yeah, for sure. So, wow, that was a lot on sounds, but that's <laughs> great because that's why we're here. Phonetics. Right? Yes, exactly. But now I just want to transition a little bit and tell me a little bit about what you think is the relationship between music and language and can rhythm actually help people to learn language? Okay, so you must be warned that I'm about to dive into a little bit of a monologue here because this is like my bread and butter. This is this is where it's at. So in addition to being a lifelong language learner, I've been playing the piano and performing vocally since I was seven. So the expansive body of literature connecting music to language learning is just undeniable. Musicians actually make for good foreign language students and vice versa. And if you don't mind me geeking out here a bit. Absolutely. <laughs> you're like, that's what we're here for. So music training plays a super critical role in the development of a foreign language in its grammar, its colloquialisms, and its vocabulary. There's actually many studies done, but one recent one that I'll cite that found that when children were taught music for just one hour a week, they displayed a higher ability to learn both the grammar and the pronunciation of foreign languages um, wow. compared to their classmates who had learned a different extracurricular activity than them. That's awesome. Yeah, it's indeed awesome. They also developed bigger vocabularies, a better sense of grammar and command of syntax, and a higher verbal IQ. So it begs the question, like, why is this the case? Why does this happen? Well, especially during crucial development years, particularly up to age nine for children, the brain is at a very sensitive development phase with 95% of it, just like its growth still yet to occur and it ended occurring in that time period. So music training that started during this period boosts the brain's ability to process really subtle differences between sounds, which assists you immensely in the pronunciation of languages. And I think the coolest part of it, kind of we talked about that superpower element earlier, is that this gift lasts for life. And it's been found that adults who had musical training in childhood still retain that ability to learn foreign languages a lot quicker and more efficiently than adults who didn't have early childhood music training. And the neuroscientific literature just like goes on and on about this, namely how acquiring new information to a rhythm or a melody helps you commit that info to your long-term memory and tease it up for instant recall, meaning that you can access that information at will or in context. That's really, really cool. Yeah. It's super cool. I find it very fascinating as well. Not to fret, though, if you didn't play an instrument or perform musically as a child, the edifying effects of language learning, or really really learning anything, honestly, through music, is still salient for adults. It's never too late to begin. Our minds have instinctually, you know, from birth all the way till the end of life, they instinctually learn better through rhythm and melody. And, um, that's yeah that's a kind of a human human thing not really a child thing so it's never too late to learn both music and become more musically proficient but also to learn new languages uh, with the assistance assistance and aid of music that's reassuring because i didn't have a lot of um childhood musical engagement and so i did attempt to learn violin uh when i was younger but then i mm -hmm. didn't stick with it but recently I have gotten a, a keyboard and I want to, you know, learn a little bit of it. And I think that, you know, it is good to learn music, you know, whenever. So it's also reassuring to know that there is some evidence out there that it's it's okay to learn it a little bit older than childhood. Yeah, it's a hundred percent the case. Like definitely don't be deterred and be like, oh, I missed that, you know, miss that wagon. No, it's never too late. 
Awesome. Yeah, I'm excited to see uh, how if as I start playing keyboard or learning keyboard, maybe I will um, be able to pick up some languages a little easier. Indeed. <laughs> so now to get to the sort of rounding out this interview, as I had mentioned in the very beginning, you are the CEO and founder of the Univoice app. So, and this is why I asked you about the relationship between music and language. So can you tell us a little bit about your app? Yeah, certainly. So just shy of a couple of years ago, I founded this language learning startup, like you mentioned, named Univoice. It's the first mobile app on the market to teach languages exclusively through music. It's not too surprising, I'm sure, because music and languages have been my lifelong passions. But prior to starting this company, I was actually teaching foreign languages online as a side job, which then turned into an Instagram profile, very millennial of me, (laughs) where I started to teach German through instructional videos. And then about my second month in, I launched this video series where I took Disney instrumentals that the world is familiar with. I stripped them of their vocals. And then I would overlay German grammar jingles to teach very difficult grammar concepts through Disney. So the series ended up going viral. And just a few months later, it evolved into a company, Univoice. So our app, Univoice, takes songs and turns them into language lessons, displaying lyrics in the source language and translating them into your native language so you can follow along easily. Then we prompt you to sing certain lines of the song with or after the artist, depending on your play mode. Then utilize our AI ML driven software to provide immediate color coded feedback on your pronunciation accuracy. You'll then get a score at the end of the song based on how well you pronounce the practice lines in aggregate, after which you can either repeat the song to improve your score, challenge your friends to beat your score, a feature coming soon, or advance on to the next song. So I actually downloaded this app and I am it's it looks really cool right now and i think there's about four languages that are available right yes that's correct english so, french spanish and german right exactly and i am curious about so first of all the way that it grades you is based on the actual phonetics so you can't just like you had told me you can't just hum along you actually have mm-hmm. to say it and can you tell us more about how the ai is kind of trained slash how it judges your phonetics absolutely So you are absolutely correct. There are a lot of competitors, including market leaders today in the language learning space or e-learning space in general, that use a tonal kind of speech recognition software rather than a character-based one or phonemics that focuses on phonemics. And so what that leads to is if, let's say, you're prompted to repeat the line, hola, como estas? You could literally be like, "Mm, mm, mm," and you can get that right. That's obviously not that helpful because when you're trying right. to learn a language, you're trying to learn the actual pronunciation, not just the intonation of it. Right. So that's a really critical thing for us. And we wanted to make sure that we reach pristine accuracy on this front. But it takes time to when you have a character based or phonemics um, driven kind of speech recognition algorithm. And the way that it works, because it's AI and ML driven, is that all new emerging technology, kind of a common thread is that they need a ton of data to improve and hone in on their accuracy. So it takes hundreds of thousands, if not millions of data points to get to that 99th percentile of accuracy and precision. So it just takes a lot of information gathering, data gathering and application to the system to make it smarter. So that's kind of how it works without getting too far under the hood and technical. So does it basically, whenever somebody's using your app, is the app also refining itself because it is learning from the people who are using the app? So does it like fine tune to like their phonetic space or anything like that? 
So it would more be an aggregate application of us amassing tons of data in aggregate okay. and then applying kind of the trends and patterns that we're seeing in pronunciation to the software. Okay, that is really cool. It is. I am not on the end of that kind of AI thing, but you know, having um, trained models to build synthetic voices, it does take a lot of data. And the more data that you get, the better it becomes. So truly, I'm really excited to see like where this app is going to go. You had mentioned, so it's right now it's limited to some languages, but you had mentioned that you are hoping to pull out some more languages as well, yes, right? Yes, in the next couple of years, for sure. So as far as the new languages are concerned, I um, will definitely be adding Italian within you know the next year plus. Between our current four languages, English, Spanish, French, German, and then our next one, Italian, we'll be covering about 85% of the online language learning market. So thereafter, once you know we've, we've refined those, we hope to add Arabic, Japanese, and Chinese, most highly requested ones. Uh, but we're fo- first going to be focusing on these first five languages for quite some time. Okay, awesome. And you also wanted to talk about you're doing a little bit of a fundraiser right now, correct? We are. I do have that exciting piece of news to share. So we're currently running a public equity crowd fundraise. Um, what does so, public equity mean yeah. exactly? So a public fundraiser that features equity as a security, basically what that means is this kind of goes back to the 2012 Jobs Act that Obama signed in his, under his administration, which permitted just the layperson, anybody in society to invest in startups, become their own investors, but just for, of course, a lot lower of an amount than you would expect a traditional angel to put $25,000 plus into a company. So basically the way that this crowdfundraise works for public equity is anybody can own a piece of startups. Like for example, in our case, you can own a piece of Univoice in exchange for small investment amounts as low as $500. So of course, small is speaking relatively. $25,000 is a lot more than $500, right? And then in exchange for your investment, based on how much you invest, of course, we award you preferred stock in the company in exchange for however much you choose to contribute to the, the equity campaign. And so that's a really big deal because preferred stock is the most valuable type of stock that you can own in a startup. It means that when a company liquidates or merges or undergoes an aqua hire, then you're going to have your stock liquidate first before any of the other owners in the company. So preferred stock is always the type of stock that you want to have in a startup when you're investing. So this just allows you to, for as low as $500, own you know, a, p- a piece of the company. So it's a really exciting opportunity. That's really interesting. Uh, while it is not related to phonetics, it also it's something that I don't know about and that I just learned a little bit about. So um, thank you for giving me a bit of a financial lesson there. <laughs> I feel like maybe we should be taught these things. I know, right? It would be nice. It would be cool to understand how stock works, but... It's true. And, and I think the government really cares a lot about the average citizen not forging their money or wasting it on, in a poor, kind of maybe a frivolous sense. So they actually limit you if you make under $100,000 a year in the United States, they limit you to only investing up to 5% of your income annually. Oh, wow. And if you make over $100,000, you can invest up to 10% of your income annually. So they do have those safeguards to protect people from making really risky investments. Like, right. So there's, that's always you know a really good safeguard. But if you would like to learn more about joining our mission and becoming a part of the Univoice team, you can go to wefunder.com backslash Univoice, U-N-I-V-O-I-C-E. Um, and we'll post that link too, I'm sure. But 
Yes, that that link will also go in the show notes along with the link to the the website for the app. So that way people can learn more about both the app and the fundraiser. That's all I had for you, Sammy. Is there anything else that you wanted to close out with? Mm -hmm. That's all that I had. That's perfect. Thank you so much for coming on to Hooked on Phonetics. And I really enjoyed talking to you about languages. I did also really enjoy the same. Thanks so much for the time, Maxwell. It's been great. Hooked is produced by Maxwell Hope and Jeffrey Ferris. It is edited by Jeffrey Ferris. The role of Average Joe was voiced by Jeffrey Ferris. The music in this episode was Unwritten Return and Impact Prelude, which were created by Kevin MacLeod and licensed for use under Creative Commons. You can find Kevin MacLeod's music at his website, www.incomptech.com. Vocal samples were used from the International Dialects of English Archive and licensed for use under Creative Commons. You can find more example of English dialects at their website, www.dialectsarchive.com. Vocal samples were used from 50languages.com and licensed for use under Creative Commons. You can go to their website and learn another language for free at www.50languages.com.